couple of the guys, you know, told me that I didn't need to be here this morning and they would cover the service and and I really felt like I needed to be here and that the Lord put this this passage on my heart to teach and um and so I wanted to be here with you guys this morning and it it's a it's a privilege for me to be here and and I want to minister to you guys and I know um, there's not much to say, you know, don't feel like you have to say a whole lot to me. There's, there's not much that, that you can say, you know, he's with the Lord and, and that's, that's a, uh, where he, um, should be. And, and we, we take just absolute joy and comfort in that. And, you know, I remember taking my dad, uh, just a, a couple months ago to, um, one of his treatments, he had brain cancer, for those of you that don't know, took him very rapidly. In uh, February, he was diagnosed with, with a uh, very, very um, aggressive uh, malignant brain tumor, and it, it took him, you know, in, in f- four months. So, but I remember taking him to one of his treatments, and and my my mom and my dad and myself all came to Christ when when I was about 15 years old, 1990. Dates me a little bit. I'm 32, so for some of you that's old. For some of you that's young. Um, but uh, 1990, we came to Christ, and my dad always struggled in his his relationship with the Lord and. Um, my mom and I really grew, and I, I attribute a lot of that to uh, my mom and I's hunger for the Word, and and my dad really never was a, a, a person that, that dove in and, and really got into the Word. And my dad struggled a lot, and uh, he, he struggled with, uh, you know, with alcohol, he struggled uh, with his temper, he was a, he's a great guy, he's a, he's an amazing man, I wish I had uh, some of the attributes that he has, but uh, or that he had, but the uh, the thing is, is that he never, never really had that strong relationship with the Lord, and and my mom and I knew it. My mom would call me sometimes, just weeping, saying, "Ryan, I don't think your dad's saved," and you know, just for whatever reason that would come about, and uh, he didn't trust the Lord. He 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 clung on to the things of this world. He put his hope in in things of this world so often and we would just pray and and when this this cancer came there was an an amazing transformation in my dad's life it was it was 180 degrees it was like the lights were off and now they're on and i remember taking him uh to his treatment and and uh, he he looked at me and he said ryan i don't think i was ever saved all these years I don't think I was ever saved. And he said, but now I know I am. And he said, the, the, the Spirit of God has come into my life. He said, I've never experienced it before. And, um, you know, Daniel and I went up there, uh, I think it was in February, not long after his surgery. He was still in the hospital. Daniel played some worship music for him. And my dad just sat there and just wept. And, you know, I'm confident of where my dad's at today. A year ago, I may not have been. Um, I know my mom wouldn't have been. And so I praise God for, for the, the sickness, the illness, because it brought him to a place where he had to make a decision for Christ. And so this morning, I want to talk about 
the hope that we have in death. It sounds funny maybe to some of you to say that, hope in death. But that really is our hope. Uh, in fact, this, this life is, is really what we sh- shouldn't be looking forward to. What we should be looking forward to is, is death, really. Because that's where we become who God created us to be. In fact, the Bible says that we're like a seed and our body will be planted in the ground. And if you know anything about agriculture, the seed has to first die before it can become what it was intended to be. And so it is through death that we become what God created for us. And that's why the Bible can say that God rejoices in the death of his saints. Sounds kind of morbid, but not when you understand the way that God sees things. That right now we're incomplete. This is a tent that we're living in. And we get to take off this tent. However that comes about. Whether it's through cancer or old age or an accident or whatever it is that, that God chooses to, to use to bring us home. That is when we truly become who God created us to be. And we can take hope in that. We don't have to fear death. And I would encourage you this morning, if you're a person that's fearing death. Now, none of us as humans wants to die in the sense of what, that we're you know, just on some uh, death wish. But the fact is, is that we shouldn't be fearing death. And if you're getting older, you, you shouldn't be afraid to die. And if you are, you really need to ask God, what is, what is going on in my heart? Do I know you? Do I have confidence in, in my position in Christ? Death isn't something to be afraid of because we know what comes after death. We have a hope. And, and I encourage you this morning, if you don't have that hope, to, to ask the Lord to give you that hope by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and, and as the one that can give you that hope. But Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, is offering that same hope to them. And this was a church that Paul had planted there in Greece. It's a city that remains to this day. It's a, a large city in Greece to this day. And Paul had planted a church there. And he only spent a couple weeks there, and so he didn't have a lot of time to establish some of these key doctrines. And they, they had a lot of questions. And so Paul writes a letter to them to, to set their hearts at ease and to instruct them and to comfort them in some of these things. And one of the questions they had and one of the misconceptions they had was about death and what would happen when, when a believer dies. And so Paul wants to offer them comfort. And so he says there in chapter 4, verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant or unaware, brethren. It's funny that every time Paul says that to a church, these are the exact things that we are ignorant of. He says that about spiritual gifts to the Corinthians. He says it about Israel's place in the end times. 
He says it about death. It's, it's funny that the things that Paul says I don't want you to be ignorant about are the exact things that the church is so often ignorant about. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, this term fallen asleep is a euphemism in the New Testament for death. Paul uses this term because he doesn't want us to see death as, as something that is horrific, something to be feared, but it's like going to sleep. It's like putting somebody on a plane and you're not going to see them for a while, but you know that you will be reunited. That's, that's the idea. Those who have fallen asleep... I don't want you to be ignorant about them, those believers that have fallen asleep. Now, I want you to understand this, that the New Testament never uses this term, fallen asleep, for for someone that is not a Christian, for someone that is not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Never uses this term, fallen asleep. It always uses the term, death. Because for the unbeliever, death is sorrowful. Because it's separation from God. But for the believer, it's something to rejoice in. It's something where we know we will be reunited. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those in your family, your friends, those in your church that have fallen asleep in Jesus. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And so Paul says, look, I don't want you to to be ignorant about the people that have died in your life that know Jesus so that you sorrow as people in the world that don't have hope in Christ. And so this gives us some encouragement that as believers it's okay that we sorrow in death. And all of us have have faced the death of, of a loved one. If you haven't, you will. Death is inevitable. It's, in fact, one of the only inevitable things in life. And as a young person, we don't really like to think about that. We don't like to think about our death a whole lot, but it will come. We don't know when it will come. Some die young, some die old. When I was a kid... I didn't have any idea when my dad would die. I don't think my dad had any idea that he would die at 56. It's not very old. I'm sure he he thought he would live much longer than that. We don't know how long we have. I, I have no idea if I'll make it to 40. You have no idea how long you have in this life. But the fact remains is that as believers, we do not sorrow for those that have passed on as those that have no hope. So we sorrow, but we don't sorrow as if we're never going to see them again or as if this is the end. We have a hope. And Paul tells us here three things that we have hope in. He tells us that we have hope in the resurrection We have hope in the return of Christ and that we have hope in our reunion with those that have 
gone on before us. We can take hope in that. First of all, the resurrection, verse 14. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do we believe that as Christians? It is a foundational belief to us that Jesus died and that he rose again. There is very little, if nothing else, that is more substantiated historically than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. We believe in a lot of things. As Americans, we believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I learned that in every history class I've ever taken, American history. But do I really know if that's true? Scott Foreman, the guy that writes all those school books, is that his name? Is that right, Darren? Scott Foreman, yeah. He, he told me that. He told me that over and over again. But I don't know if that's true because I wasn't there. But I believe it because it's substantiated historically. Think about all these other things. We believe that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. But do we really know if that's true? Were you there in that theater that night? Of course not. But you believe it's true because it's substantiated historically. And we could go on and on with things that we didn't see personally, but we believe them. Well, let's just say that the death and resurrection of Christ are substantiated in more documentation than any of those things combined. And yet so many people say, well, where's the proof? Where's the proof? If we're going to start going down that road, then we have a lot of things to question in this world. I have no idea how my truck starts. Absolutely no idea. In fact, it's more complicated the newer these things get. Only my key will start my truck. I can't even go make a copy of it at, you know, Bymart. I've got to go to the Toyota dealership and they're like $1,000. <laughs> I guess that's good. Nobody can steal my truck. But I have no idea what happens. You turn the key and something happens. and I don't even know. Do they have spark plugs anymore? I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. I don't know what happens in there, but it starts. And if it doesn't, I'm shocked. Right? Now, 10, 15 years ago when I drove a Dodge Omni, I wasn't shocked. I was shocked when it started. <laughs> but now I'm shocked when it doesn't work. But I don't know how it works. And the same is true with Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But I believe it. And it's substantiated. And it's documented historically. And so believe what you will about God and about the Bible and about Christianity. But please do not say that it's not documented historically, that it's not proven reliably. That's just not true. 
can't do that. That it's just unfactual. And so we have a hope in the resurrection that Jesus died. He was crucified at the hands of the Romans. He was given up by the religious leadership there in Jerusalem. He was interrogated. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was drugged through the city, made to carry his own cross when he was pretty much dead as it was. Most men would die after the beating that he received. His back was laid open. His, his entrails would have been coming out. You could have seen into his organs. He carried his cross as far as he could. The fatigue caught up with him. They compelled a man, a, a Cyrenian by the name of Simon, to carry the cross the rest of the way. They took that horizontal beam, they nailed his hands to it. They lifted it up on a vertical beam that was probably a tree, could have been a post. They, they hung him there. And Jesus was not way out in the wilderness somewhere when he was crucified. Jesus was right in the middle of town, just outside of town, but where everyone was passing by. I compare it to, you know, the, the Y there, the west side of town where the roads converge. Right there. He wasn't crucified like 20 feet in the air. Would have been about at eye level. People walked by, they mocked him, they spit on him. They said obscene things to him. Little did they know it was the God of the universe that had created them that was hanging there for their very sins. He died. Notice that Paul says Jesus died. He doesn't say Jesus went to sleep. It's because of that which I just described. Because Paul doesn't want to make light of the death of Christ. Because it wasn't a light thing. It was torturous. It was barbaric. But he was our substitute. He took our place. And then he rose again. Over 500 people attested to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He spoke to many of them personally. Many of them gave their lives for their belief in the resurrection. And so this idea that Jesus was hidden by his disciples in what some purport, that the disciples wanting to, to further the message of Christ went and hid Jesus for fear that he would be found to be a hoax. Number one, How'd they get by all those guards that were planted by the tomb? Number two, how did they move the stone that probably weighed over a ton? Those are questions that are left without answers because they don't make sense. Why would people give their life for something they knew to be a lie? 
You wouldn't. You would fold under pressure. Peter, James, John, Paul, all tortured for their faith. Not one of them ever recanted. Not one of them ever said, it's a hoax, it's a lie. We made it up. He was resurrected. And if we believe that, many of us believe that. If you don't, then you stand against the preponderance of evidence that will condemn you. People say Christianity is blind faith. That too is wrong. Christianity is not blind faith. God does not ask us to believe in something that isn't proven or that isn't documented and that isn't revealed to us. Yes, there is an element of faith where we didn't see these things and we don't understand these things. And how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? There there is an element of faith, believe it. But God doesn't say, hey, just take a blind leap into the dark. These things are, are substantiated. And if you don't believe them, you stand against the facts. And many of us do believe this. And if you do believe it, then it ought to produce hope in you. That Jesus died, but he rose again. And he's the first fruits of our resurrection. That's what Paul wants us to understand. If we believe that, do you believe it? That Jesus died and he rose again. He didn't just die. He's not in the tomb anymore. He rose again. He spoke to many of his disciples. They saw him with their own eyes. They died for it. If you believe that, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So the fact that we believe in the resurrection gives us hope that one day we will be resurrected. So as I think about my dad, and I think about on the fact that on this planet, I will never see him again. That he, he won't be able to fix all the projects that I am unable to fix at my house. I look forward to when my mom and dad came, because Andrew has all these honeydews, and I don't know how to do the honeydews. <laughs> so when my dad came, my dad is like the most handy guy ever. I mean, he, he's, he was amazing. He could fix anything. And if he didn't know how to fix it, he'd figure it out. Who's going to do that? I have no idea. Andy. <laughs> But I know this, that one day I'll see him. And I take hope in the resurrection. That if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. 
We have hope in the resurrection. We also have hope in the return of Christ. Look what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And what exactly Paul means by this, whether he's quoting Jesus here, which we don't know that for sure because these aren't the words of Jesus that we see in the Gospels at all. Or if he's just saying this is uh, by the authority of God, we don't really know. But we do know that, that this is the word of God. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, those of us who are left behind after someone dies, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so he's encouraging them, seemingly in a misconception they had, that if you died before the rapture, before the return of Christ, that somehow you would miss out. Paul is saying, not at all. As he told the Corinthians that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And so, in death, we just precede those who are alive and remain at the return of Christ. So those of us that are alive at the return of Christ, we will actually be resurrected, be raptured, be taken to be with the Lord after those. They, they precede us in, in their resurrection. Now some believe that that this means that at the return of Christ, all of the, the bodies of, of those that have died will be, you know, resurrected and then transformed in their new bodies. And people say, well, what about the fact that they've decomposed? And what about those that have been cremated? And I mean, that isn't anything to the Lord, who's the creator and author of everything that we see. But I don't know that that's necessarily what Paul is saying here. I think we might be reading into that. I think what he's simply saying is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That when we die, we go into the presence of the Lord, and so we precede those that are alive at the coming of Christ. That we precede them in resurrection. If you die before the return of Christ, then you go into his presence, you receive your resurrected body, and you're in his presence forevermore. And even if it's true that there is this new body given at the resurrection, which some theologians and scholars believe, and that previous to that, when you die, your spirit is in heaven, but but there's a reuniting with your body at the return of Christ. Personally, find that hard to believe. But even if that's true, there's no time in heaven. See, we think of things in past, present, and future. But in heaven, in eternity, everything is the now. Everything's present. So even if that were true, it would happen anyway. Right? 
Because everything is happening at once. We can't fathom that. Because we see everything as events in the past, things that are happening now, and things that will happen in the future. But that's not eternity. When you think about eternity, you need to think about eternal now. And that's why we won't have the, the concept of forever because it's just now. You're not thinking into the future. You're not looking back into the past. It's just now. Think about that for a little while. And so, at the return of Christ, we will be reunited with our loved ones. And the return of Christ gives us hope that he's coming to get us. And I want you to notice that Paul spoke about the return of Christ as if it could happen at any time and as if they expected it to happen in their lifetime. He didn't say, hey, the return of Christ, which by the way is probably not going to happen for like a couple thousand years, so don't worry about that. He said, he spoke with excitement and about the imminent return of Christ. They expected it to happen. It was their hope. And see, as believers, we can never get to a place where we don't expect the Lord to return because it creates within us laziness. It creates within us worldliness. And having the hope of his return does just the opposite. It makes us sober-minded. It creates holiness within us. It makes us want to be about his business. Because we think, you know what, Lord? You can come back at any time. And so I'm looking up because my redemption draws close. I expect you to come back any day, Lord. If it's today, I'm ready. If it's not in my lifetime, then I'm just serving you. It's not like I'm sitting up on my roof just saying, Lord, come today, doing nothing. But we're ready. We're living lives of expectation and anticipation. And see, Paul goes on in chapter 5 to tell them, That concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need that I write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been robbed, you weren't expecting it. If you were expecting it, you wouldn't have been robbed. Thieves come when you don't expect them to come. Now, we can't carry this connection any further than that as far as Jesus being a thief but the point is the illustration is is that he's going to come at a time when you're not expecting it and so you're just ready you're ready 
For when they say peace and safety, then comes sudden destruction upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. You are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. And this word sleep here is a different word than what was used previously. This has nothing to do with death, but it has to do with spiritual apathy. Therefore, let us not fall asleep spiritually. Let us not be living as if our feet are firmly planted here in this world, making our home here. That's the idea. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober, be alert. For those who sleep, again, those who are apathetic in their relationship with Christ, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He's just talking about worldly living that that oftentimes it's associated with the night. And biblically speaking, light and darkness are diametrically opposed, speaking of spiritual things, godly things, and things of this world and things of our flesh. But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. What is Paul saying? Is Paul giving us an outline of when Jesus is coming back and and, and how everything is going to play out? Not at all. Does Paul tell us, hey, consume yourself with prophecy updates and end times events and all of these kinds of things? No. Not at all. What does Paul say? Paul says, Jesus is coming back. So be ready. Well, when's he coming back? That's what we want to know. When? How? Where? We want to know all the details. We want, to, we want to have it all mapped out. And Paul says, look, that's not of your concern. Jesus said, even the angels and the Son of God do not know when he will return. Only the Father. We want to know All of these things and yet what Jesus tells us and what Paul tells us is to simply be ready. To be ready with the way that we're living our life. That's what he talks about there in chapter 5. And so as we have the hope of his return, it spurs us on to holiness. It spurs us on to living for Jesus and him alone. As we've been talking about in Colossians, it motivates us to make him preeminent in our life because we do not want to have him come back and have him find us steeped in this world. And there are 
scores of teachings on that that Jesus gives his disciples. That when the master goes away, he doesn't tell his servant when he'll return. Why? Because he wants him to anticipate that he could come back at any time. Just like a good boss. If you're an employer, if you're smart, you don't tell your employees when you're coming back when you leave. Hey, I'll be back at 4 o'clock. Hey, all right. Kick my feet up till 3.55. All right, he's coming back. Okay, get to bit, get work. Get to work, everybody. Get busy. Boss is coming back. I remember when I worked at Costco, the corporate officers would come unannounced. The only thing they didn't know is that the store previous to ours would always call and tell us they were coming. (laughs) But they thought they were coming unannounced. And it was for a reason. Because they wanted to see how daily operations were going without them being there. When a boss comes back, he wants to see how people are working. Jesus wants us to be anticipating that he could come back at any time. So he doesn't tell us when he's coming back. Paul, in the first century, Christians believed he could come back at any time. That's the anticipation they had 2,000 years ago. And it's the anticipation we should have today especially as we see prophecies unfolding and as we see things coming together and we see that his return is so close. Now, is it a disappointment if you live your whole life in anticipation of his return and you go home to be with the Lord? Absolutely not. Just like it's not a disappointment if you work hard all day and your boss never comes back. Right? You did a good job. And so we have hope in the return of Christ. And one day, he will return. Whether we're alive and and we're here for that, I have no idea. But I want to be ready And that's what I love about uh, the movement of Calvary Chapel is that we've always had at the foundation uh, of our teaching that hope and that anticipation that Jesus could come back at any time. Now all the particulars and the pre-trib and the post and the pre-wrath and the mid-trib, all those different ideas. And, and you, I mean, you, it gets even more complicated than that, pre-millennialism and amillennialism and post-millennialism. I leave that for people much smarter than me to figure out. I, to be real honest with you, I, I'm confused on a lot of these things. I read things and I just think, Lord, I don't understand. 
I don't know where this fits. I don't know how that makes sense. But I do know this, that Jesus is coming back. And I have hope in that. And I'm not interested in dividing or arguing. Believe what you will. But believe that he is coming back. And live in that anticipation. We have hope in that. He will return. He will descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, more than likely the the voices of a multitude of angels, with the trumpet of God. The dead will rise, the living will be caught up, we'll be all together with the Lord. And that's the last thing that I want to talk about, is found in verse 17. The last thing that we have hope in is our reunion. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this, this word caught up here, it's harpazo in the Greek. It's where we get the word rapture. In the Latin Vulgate, they translated that phrase caught up as raptus. It was then translated into English as rapture. Some will say, well, the rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's in the Latin Vulgate. It's not in the English. It's, it's a catching away. Call it whatever you want. The timing of it is not for me to discuss this morning. That's not what I wanted to talk about. What I wanted to talk about is hope and death. And this catching away will be a, a reunion with those that have passed on before us. We will be reunited. I have hope in that, that one day I will see my dad again, whether it's in the rapture or in my death, I will see him again. And those loved ones that you have, that have passed on, you will, if they are a believer, and they were a believer, and you are a believer, then you will see them again. That's the hope that we have in Christ. We will be reunited. And so death is like saying farewell for a time. But to be reunited again. Therefore, as he says at the end of the next section as well, in verse 11 of chapter 5, therefore, comfort each other. Here, therefore, comfort each other one another with these words. The idea is that this brings us hope and comfort. That we don't sorrow as those that have no hope. That we can be comforted. Now notice that Paul doesn't say be comforted. He says comfort one another. And see in the Christian life we always receive by giving. Paul doesn't say, be comforted with this. Paul says, go and comfort somebody else and you will be comforted. Serve, minister. It's really why I wanted to be here this morning. It doesn't do me any good to, to sorrow, to, to feel sorry for myself. I want, to, I want to serve others as long as I'm here. That's what my dad would want me to do. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
I hope that you have been comforted this morning in your own death, maybe in the death of of loved ones. I hope that you will comfort one another, that you'll serve and bless one another with your life, that your life will bring, bring comfort to others. We have a hope, you guys, a hope beyond this world. We can take hope in nothing else but that. If right now your hope is in your retirement, I, I mean, I, I hope that, you know, in, in your case, that, it, that it's just great for you, but you're putting your hope in that. People work all their lives in the prime of their life and then they retire and they think, oh, this is going to be great and all of a sudden they're old and they can't enjoy it. And they got 14 medications to take a day and they can't sleep. Think, oh man, I can't wait to sleep in. Old people don't sleep in. Ask Mike. He told, he told me the other day I never sleep in. I mean, I'm not belittling retirement. I'm just saying we can't put our hope in it. People think, oh man, I can't, can't wait until I'm married. Put my hope in that. Well, talk to people that are married. <laughs> And then people say, oh, I can't wait until I have kids. Put your hope in kids. Can't wait until my kids are out of the house. <laughs> put your hope in that. It, we can't put our hope in the things of this world. Oh, I can't wait until I get this raise. I, I hope I get this raise. And see, I want you guys to, to understand the difference between hope in a worldly sense and hope in a godly sense. Hope in a worldly sense is fleeting and it's passing and it's based on the winds of change. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get that new car. I I hope he asks me out. I hope she says yes. I hope I get that for Christmas, whatever. And it leads to disappointment. But the hope that the Bible offers is a hope that leads to comfort. It's something that has not yet happened, but will certainly happen. That's the hope that we have in the resurrection. That when we die, we don't just go into the ground, we'll be resurrected. That our last breath here is our first breath in heaven for those of us that know Jesus. We have a hope in the return of Christ. We have a hope in our reunion with with other believers. And I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity this morning to come to Christ, to have that hope for yourself. Maybe like my dad, you said, I don't know if I'm really saved. I don't know if I have that hope. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. But I would be remiss if I didn't give you that opportunity. 
And so we'll be available to pray with you afterward. The Bible doesn't really give invitations. It's a summons. It's not an invitation. An invitation means, hey, would you come over to my house? We're having a barbecue and I can take it or leave it. Ah, I'm busy. Can't make it. Listen, God's not giving you an invitation. He's giving you a summons. You know when you get a ticket, it says you are hereby summoned to appear in court. It's not an invitation. You don't have a choice. Now if you reject the summons, you're going to hear about it. And if you reject the summons of God, you will hear about it. The Bible says that every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I'm not giving you an invitation. I'm offering you what the Bible says is an opportunity to receive what Jesus Christ did on your behalf. Take it or you leave it. You take it in obedience to God. Your creator. And so we'll be available to pray with you. We would love nothing more than to have you come and say, I want that for myself. I heard God's call and I want him in my life. Maybe you need prayer for something else. Whatever it is, we'd love to pray with you for anything. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to to come and close us in song. Why don't we stand together? If you need prayer, please come. If If you want Jesus in your life, please come.